Hello, and welcome to the podcast with Suzanne and Amy, brought to you by Homeschool Life Magazine and our fabulous Patreon supporters. I'm Suzanne. And I'm Amy. And we are recording on Friday, June 19th, 2020, which also happens to be Juneteenth. Happy Um, Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. Wow, we are seeing a lot of uh, states and companies and everybody uh, starting to recognize Juneteenth, which is pretty amazing. It is. Uh, I will say, I think it is a great day for white homeschool families to kind of make a donation to an organization that supports Black Freedom. I know we are donating to a local bail fund as part of our Juneteenth festivities. And our synagogue, awesomely, is putting on a special Kabbalah Shabbat online today in honor of Juneteenth. So it's really wonderful to see this. Wow. That, that, I mean, that's a really, really lovely idea. I, I love that. Um, I think if you don't know what Juneteenth is, or if you've just started learning about Juneteenth, then yeah, that is, I did, that is where I was not too long ago. Um, it's, there's some, it, there's plenty of resources out there to learn about it. It's really great. There's a great blackish episode about Juneteenth, but I, it's only gosh, in the past, maybe few years that I really read a lot about Juneteenth and um, we were able to cover it briefly in our, our civil war um, uh, 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 class last, last semester. So that's good. But I actually had, so it also happens, Amy, you probably don't know this, but June 19th is also my wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary, Suzanne and Philip. Well, thank you so much. I just had one of our, actually one of our groomsmen, um, we're not in super touch with with him anymore but he's he's an old friend sent us an email saying happy anniversary and did you guys did you guys mean to get married on juneteenth and i was like it's <laughs> like we had no idea it was juneteenth 27 years ago i was very ignorant and you didn't have any idea either so <laughs> i mean it's pretty awesome to be on the cusp of this kind of systemic change like it's it's difficult yes. and there are really hard things and really sad things about it but it's also kind of amazing it to think is about. it is kind there are some amazing things happening right now which i think brings us to you know how we kind of thought about the topic for this week's podcast yes well i i think for me as a middle-class white woman homeschooling my children I have become more and more interested in the question of white privilege in homeschooling. I guess it's not really a question. We know it exists. Yes. But sort of how how it exists and how we can work against it. Do you think that's the right way to say it? How we can work against white privilege in our homeschools? Right. I think that's I think that's the way to approach it is to to, we first have to acknowledge it and see it, which is which can be really, really hard for those of us with white privilege, which is going to be most homeschoolers, right? Well, because the truth is most of the methods that we associate with homeschooling, if you go and you list, you look at a list of how to homeschool methods, almost all these methods are heavily whitewashed methods. Classical homeschooling, Charlotte Mason, Waldorf, Montessori, Emilio Reggio, Even if you just go, and I did this before this podcast, even if you just go and do a Google image search for project-based learning, the pictures are mostly of white people, mostly of white children. 
Um, some of this is because we're talking about education in the United States. That's 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 really what we're talking about here because that's what we we know about. Doesn't mean it doesn't apply to education in other places, but we're talking about U.S. education and U.S. education is based on European education, which we know is steeped in imperialism and yep. colonization. And then the United States comes in and they get to bring their very own special brand of racism and the enslavement of people of color to all that. So what you end up with is a really whitewashed curriculum. Yes, I think that I think that's true. It also speaks to uh, differences in opportunity in class that goes along with with white privilege. I know that um, years and years and years ago, I did this diversity thing and uh it it had some good stuff and some bad stuff it was through our church and one of the things they talked about was identifying things as upper class or middle class or lower class and um i was kind of a i had young children and was a homeschooler at that point and homeschooling happened to be kind of one of these things on the list and homeschooling went into went into upper class which shocked me because most of the homeschoolers I know, for us too, we have made lifestyle choices that do not feel like upper class lifestyle choices, right? Trying to uh, trying to uh, survive our homeschooling lifestyle. But the fact of the matter is, I was able to quit my job and stay home, right. and my husband kept working. And so you can't you can't separate, you know, that from, you know, it was a very different situation if both of us were working two, three jobs, something like that. It may not be practical. So it's all mixed in there together. Right. The the white privilege, um, the opportunity, uh, all of that kind of stuff, the economic opportunity to do it. Right. I I think that we don't we don't always like to think about it that way because a lot of us are I don't want to say like living paycheck to paycheck homeschooling but but I mean we do give up a lot to homeschool like we give up big family vacations like I have students who you know travel to Europe every year and that's just hilariously out of our budget right <laughs> like like so far out of our budget that it's hilarious just, you know the people the people you know that I went to college with and the way their homes have changed over the years and their cars and everything else are not you know we're nope we're in the same house and and yeah but being able to make that choice yes. is such a privilege and we we forget that we we really do. I mean it's because because we have the luxury of being able to forget it we do right. you know um so so what's interesting is that even though the United States is increasingly becoming not a white country it's becoming a minority majority country it has been for a while now curriculum is still pretty white and homeschooling is still a majority white enterprise this is changing Homeschool statistics, I know I complain about this every time, but I'm never going to stop because they are so slippery. They don't get tracked everywhere. And where they do get tracked, they don't get tracked the same ways. And where they do get tracked in the same way, they're not always using the same definitions of homeschooling. Right, right. Absolutely. (laughs) An exact number for anything is really hard. But in many of the states that do track homeschooling, black homeschoolers are the fastest rising group of homeschoolers. In 2016, um, and again, slippery statistics, slippery numbers, but it looks like black homeschoolers accounted for 8% of the 1.7 million homeschooled students nationally, according to the U.S. Department of Education Statistics, which again, 
maybe, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but that number was up to 10% the next year in 2017. So what what federal education data doesn't show is is what's driving those increased numbers. You know, where are those homeschoolers? Why are they making the choices they are? But despite this, despite this, my homeschool groups, the ones that we go to, are still predominantly white. Was this your experience with homeschool groups? Absolutely. I'm trying to think. I didn't do a lot with homeschool groups um, over our period, you know, when, when we were like deep, deep in it. But I'm trying to think the two groups that I was primarily in, if we had any any people of color, not just black people, but right. right, you know, I mean, it's, it it was very white. It was very, very white is what I'm saying. And I want to say, like, I don't, I don't know how to, there is icky data around that, right? Like homeschooling is legal in all 50 states. In the United States, homeschooling is regulated on a state by state basis. So every state makes its own rules. And that means that homeschooling became legal in states. on, on like a different time frame, right? It's not like homeschooling became legal in the United States. Homeschooling became legal in Arizona and then it became legal in New Mexico, right? Um, but a lot of homeschool laws, a lot of the laws that allowed homeschooling in states show up on the books alongside integration legislation. So basically, as schools became desegregated, homeschooling became a legal alternative for families who didn't want to send their kids to desegregated schools. Not every time and not in every state and correlation doesn't imply causation, but still that's kind of icky. Right. Yeah. It's the private school problem too. My, my brother teaches in what I affectionately call a hoity toity um, private school in Virginia that prides itself on its long history, but um, like many other schools, uh, if you look at the history, it sprang back up again when integration came along. Right. Um, and and homeschooling similar, right? White parents were looking for ways and excuses to pull their children out of segregated schools, which is, like you say, it's just icky. It's icky it to, to be a part of that in any way. Um, but you can't get away from it. So I I am delighted to see a rise in Black homeschoolers and Latinx homeschoolers and Native homeschoolers and all kinds of people of color turning to homeschooling because I do think that kind of it's it's time to take some of the white privilege out of homeschooling. I I mean I I think that and so I guess I guess the question the big question becomes then. Yes, this is a problem. So how do we do it? How do we start to fix this problem? Um, For for me, I think um, maybe one of the first and most important things that we can do is to support people who are already doing this work. Because people of color have been building more inclusive reading lists, more inclusive curriculum additions, more inclusive everything for a long time. And they should be the first place that you look for these resources, right? Buy their stuff if it's for sale. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. If you want whitewash curriculum, somebody has to make it. Yeah. And it should probably be people who aren't white, at least, you know, I mean, that should be the first place you look. And, And I feel like this is an issue that comes up a lot in homeschooling. Like we're talking about 
homeschoolers make a lot of sacrifices. Often money is tight and we are looking for free resources. You know, we want the free math curriculum. We want the free history curriculum. But if people who are doing this work, for them, yes, it may be a labor of love, but being able to do that kind of work for free is a privilege that a lot of people who want to do that kind of work don't have. So if you want more representative curriculum, if you want curriculum by diverse voices, you really need to pay the people who are doing it. Um, because a lot of people can't afford to just give away free diverse resources. And it's, and, and it's not even fair to, to ask them or expect them to. No, I think that's a really, really good point. And it's, it's again, that's a big problem with white privilege, right? Is this idea that suddenly as white people, we look out there and say, hey, there's a problem. Let's jump in and, and try to solve it because clearly nobody's tried to solve it before. And if you actually take a minute to educate yourself and do the research, it's like, no, there are people in this field <laughs> who have been working on it for decades or for a long time or the resources exist, right? So the fact that we haven't, that you may not have seen these resources doesn't mean that they're not out there. Right. And it's kind of on us to, on us as I'm speaking as a, a white middle-class homeschool mom here to go find those resources. It really is. And I think, you know, I think we have to kind of, this is the problem with primary sources for not white people in history too. Like a lot of times this curriculum may not be as pretty as curriculum mm -hmm. that's more mainstream or it may that's not true. be as well edited. But it's important to go to the source. It's important to like spend money on this curriculum because if we don't, then that curriculum will never be able to get to hire a designer to make it prettier. It will never be able to hire an editor to go through and clean up some of the errors. Like, like people need financial support to do those things and not white owned companies often struggle to make that work. Right. I mean, and I think, I think a lot of us don't, don't realize, I mean, like you say with the editing, uh, you know, it's like, well, just, it's not that people aren't writing it correctly. It's that all of the stuff, the work that goes into makes it to make it look pretty and finished and all that again, costs money and effort and time. So, you know, it's, it's, it really is necessary to support those, those uh, pieces of curriculum out there. Yes. And I think, I think along similar lines, um, I, I know that I have been guilty of this in my life. When you do have that awesome, smart woman of color show up at your homeschool group, don't ask her to unwhitewash your curriculum <laughs> for you. <laughs> like, yes, she is cool and smart and interesting. And remember everything that she says. And if she offers information, that is amazing. But don't don't ask her. That is not your job. And if she is nice enough to offer stuff, don't argue with her. Like, I have seen this happen so many times where yeah. a woman of color will speak up about a problem that she has with a curriculum. And, and she's just giving her own opinion. You know, she's not saying I'm an expert and this is. And then, and then the white homeschoolers who use it try to argue with her about how it's not racist. Let's not be those people. Right? Yeah. Like it, it seems harmless. It really does. It doesn't. Because, because you're just arguing facts, right? You're taking your opinion and the facts and you're like presenting it back to her. But, but that is not cool. When, when someone offers you this kind of input, they're doing you a favor, right? Most people of color have been asked to do this kind of thing a million times. It's emotional labor for them and it's practical labor for them. 
right? And yeah. mostly, I think that that we should listen and be respectful of that. It's like, it's not their job, right? They're not our personal homeschool consultant to help us make our homeschool more diverse. And it's it can be really tempting to treat them this way because that is kind of how homeschooling works, right? Yeah. We use each other as soundboards. We bounce off each other. This is a really specific kind of ask that it's not always cool to do. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I think that when we're talking about white privilege, we one of the first things we can do is become really aware of our defensiveness. I mean, in the United States, you know, this not even saying not saying you are racist, but saying, you know, this book that you are reading or this movie that you have enjoyed has problems can can really trigger for a lot of us a huge defensive wall. And I think for homeschoolers, it's even worse, right? Because I think many of us feel the responsibility that we have taken on our shoulders of, of choosing the curriculum, of educating our children, and we feel that responsibility. We understand how big it is. So for somebody to come in and say, hey, this curriculum that you love and that has worked really well for you, here are some of the problems with it, right? That can really trigger all of that defensiveness. And that is going to shut down any conversation, right? You're not going to learn anything. And um, a lot of it is just being aware, right? You can use, you can use curriculum. You can talk about the curriculum in ways to highlight any problems with it, right? That becomes part of the education. It doesn't mean you have to throw things away. Some things probably should be thrown away, but it doesn't mean you have to throw something you love away it just means that you need to know more about it and to be able to have a conversation about it. For me, I find that it, I don't know if, if this is true for you, but I find that it helps instead of saying, is this racist? To ask instead, is this anti-racist? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that is a more positive approach, right? And often often things are racist, right? And you can find racism in almost everything that kind of not even the point anymore. We can assume that the racism is there. But is it anti-racist? Can we use this in a way that actively promotes anti-racism? And you you can actually use some materials that have a racist bent that way if, as you say, you make it part of the learning. You make it part of the curriculum. I always, I know I always tell this story of my little house on the prairie story. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Little House on the Prairie when I was a little girl. Um, I I loved it so much. I ran around in a calico dress and a sunbonnet before cosplaying was even really a thing. I played pioneers in the back pasture. I, you know, I made corn pudding. I was obsessed with Little House on the Prairie. And when my kids, when we started homeschooling, it was one of the series that I was so excited to read with my own kids. I couldn't wait. And we got through Little House in the Big Woods. And then we started Little House on the Prairie, and it was terrible. Suzanne, it was so racist. Like, jump up and smack you in the face. How did I not notice this racist? And I had to face hard facts, not just that the series that I loved was racist, but that I had been racist enough not to notice. Right? right? Like, that was was a hard – that was a gut punch. Yeah. But what I learned from that experience was that, one, yay, my kids were less racist than I had been as a kid because they immediately noticed it and were upset (laughs) by it. So I feel like that's generational progress. (laughs) And 
it, it wasn't about me. Like I talked to my kids about the problems with the book and it was a great productive discussion that ended up to us spending a year studying Native American history. So, so I mean, I, I think like if I had just made that about me and how bad I felt about being a racist and how it was so terrible that this book I loved, I mean, it was terrible that this book I loved yeah. like that, you know, like I did have a personal reaction to that. But the bigger picture, the more important thing was acknowledging that it was racist and figuring out some way to go from there. So if we're willing to face these kinds of things in our homeschool, it can be really productive. It can lead to a lot of good stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we are. We are trying to do better for our kids. Right. I think that generational progress is a really is a really important thing to look at. Um So the last thing that I have on my sort of general list, because I think you have specific ideas for different age groups, which I'm excited about. But the last (laughs) thing I have on this kind of general, like how to how to take some of the whitewashing out of your homeschool um, is is to watch out for language, because the words that we use really matter. Um, The Europeans who came to North America, they weren't really settlers. They they were invaders. They came into established countries, not wilderness, and they forced the people who lived there off their land. That's kind of a big deal. And when we call them settlers, we're glossing over that fact, right? Absolutely. And the words we use around the institution of slavery, if you make one change in language, I, I really recommend getting rid of the word slave. People are not slaves. They are enslaved. And it is a big, important difference. I know when I was writing um, a U.S. history curriculum, I spent a lot of time just talking to people, to professors and thinkers, Black people, Latinx people, Native people, about the best way to talk about them. And this feels like a lot of work, right? Because nobody has done it. Like, we haven't done it enough. Right. But, but we need to be doing it now because it is it is important. Like, it is important to talk about people in the right ways and to use the right words to describe things. And, and it does. It matters. I mean, I, I think that's one of the reasons that the racism in Little House on the Prairie <laughs> jumps up and hits you in the face now because we know better. And so, yeah. so using the right language, I think, is a big, big piece of that. Um, I, I am, of course, passionate about the right words in the right places. <laughs> You have opinions. You have opinions. I, but I still but I still feel that this is like a big piece of it and the way that we talk about things shapes them for our kids in a meaningful way and we can use our privilege to, to do a better job of that. Well, and I've seen a lot of that recently. Again, we did the Civil War last semester and there's a lot of uh, really interesting discussion. You know, I grew up with the Civil War, the North and the South, the Union and the Confederacy. And the truth is it was the United States and a, a rebellion against traitors. You know, they, these were, you know, the, all of the military commanders were people who had signed an oath to the United States and who decided to break that oath, right? And so when we reduce, you know, instead of talking about the United States Army, we talk about the Northern Army or this, you know, the Union Army, we're almost treating it like two, this kind of view of the Civil War, like, oh, well, you know, two football teams, right? They, they, right. they each gave it their best and the North won. And no, that's not true. It's really important that the Union Army was the United States Army. Right. And when you say the North and the South, there were, we know about Robert E. Lee, right? Who broke his oath to the North and to broke his oath, sorry, to the United States. Um, but there were many, many 
officers and people in the military who were from the South, but who chose not to break that oath, right? Who end up fighting for the United States during the war. And to uh, you're throwing away all of those people when you just kind of reduce it to the North and the South or to the Union and the Confederacy. And it's hard. I will, you know, you can even tell just in the past few sentences I've said, it is hard to start talking about it that way because it's just a new way of phrasing things. You're not changing the content, but um, right. we have been so trained, right, to say certain words. So it is this work of using enslaved people instead of slaves, all this kind of stuff is is not easy and it takes time, but doing it and stumbling over it and then talking to your kids about why you're making this change and why you're stumbling over it, you know, that's all part of it. And it yeah. all counts. It all counts. It really does. I mean, I think, I think that that is one thing that we can take a lot of hope from is, is that our mistakes can be fodder for doing it better, right? If we treat right. them the right way, if, if we acknowledge them, and we talk about them with our kids, they can actually be incredibly productive in moving our homeschool away from white privilege. So, so even our mistakes can be, can be positive if, if we kind of view them that way as well, opportunities. It's, it's all being able to say, I did that wrong. I didn't know I'm trying, you know, of all being the humility, right. Of, of acknowledging that we're not perfect and we're not experts. And even in front of my classroom, you know, last semester, I would, would correct myself and say enslaved people. Okay, this is what in class. This is why we're trying to make this change in terms of words, and this is why I try to say the United States. And yeah, I screwed up sometimes, and I didn't use the right. I didn't use the terms that I wanted to use always. Right. But we talked about why, and I think that makes it more memorable. Anyway. Well, our, you know, the high school makes fun of me because um, they, they, they joke that now's the, now's the 10 minutes that Amy spends explaining why she's going to call people what she does. But I do. I, I sit down yeah. and, at the beginning of every class and I say, OK, so when I talk about the people who came from Africa or from the islands to live in North America who were kidnapped and brought here as enslaved people, I'm, I'm going to call them black with a capital B. And here's why, <laughs> because right. I, I think that that's important. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it does. It does require educating yourself and it requires educating yourself and not, not, as you said before, not grabbing the nearest black person and saying, right. could you please quickly tell me everything I need to know? Um, and I guess that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was thinking about white privilege and homeschooling, because, you know, Amy's talking about the big picture, right? Statistics and these really ingrained problems I would say with our educational system and kind of with everything trickling down and, and some of us may be in a position where we're kind of taking first baby steps, right? Um, some of us are encountering the ideas around white privilege and white fragility and all that kind of stuff for the very first time. So, you know, if you're in that place, how can we, how can we grow beyond that? Right. And it is our job to educate ourselves. And the good news is that right now you cannot turn around on the Internet without stumbling over another great reading list. Anti-racist. Embarrassment of riches. Oh, my God. I mean, you barely have to Google. Right. I mean, um, it's it's right out there. There are so many good books, uh, uh, a really great place to start. And I don't want to get into listing books because Amy knows Amy will have to stop me in 20 minutes if I start listing books. But so you want to talk about race by 
Ejama Aluo is a very good place to start. Um, so read the books on those reading lists, right? And those books are going to be things from how-to manuals and, and exploring the ideas of how we talk about race and why this is a problem and, and microaggressions and all that to history, to also just Black perspectives, you know, memoirs and essays and all that kind of good stuff. Right, because all Black people are not enslaved. Like, I think it's really important not to just look at the 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 challenges that I don't I don't even know like what's what's the word the horrible things that Black Americans have gone through because that is not the sum total of their story and treating it like that is insulting in many ways. It's and, important to talk about slavery, the institution, but it's also important to talk about Black people beyond and outside that. I feel like I mean for me that's a very personal thing for me because it was a big realization for me. You know, I have read a lot of books over the years. <laughs> and when I go back and realized, you know, uh, several years ago when I was kind of getting more into this and 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 looking at my past and what I've read, and I was like, why haven't I read more books by and about Black people? And one thing that I realized was that from a very, very early age, I don't know when it happened, but this goes all the way back to childhood. I associated books by and about Black people with really depressing material, right? right? I mean, slavery and more slavery and the civil rights and lynching and just, just very important history that we need to know. Well, but in all fairness to you, those are the books about Black people that ended up in the Scholastic Catalog, right? I mean, those are the exactly. books that we saw. And what that translated to was me as an adult, if I'm in the library and I see an interesting book for, I don't do this anymore. I just want to say my previous self when I'm kind of my beginner right. step, right? And I saw a sticker on the spine that said um, African-American, Right. I would I would put it back on the shelf because I was kind of like, oh, no, I need something fun to read right now. Right. And that that is a big, huge problem. So, yes, those works are important, but there's so much more out there. Um, there is a big talk. Excuse me. <clears throat> on on a lot of the authors I follow are talking about how we have to celebrate black joy. Right. Yeah. So. Don't just, you know, don't feel like, oh, gosh, now I have to go get I have to go read all Oprah Winfrey's old book club picks, you know, that were always often quite grim and and depressing. And oh, no, go go find. First of all, diversify your social media. Right. Start following um, black content creators, whether those are black authors or movie makers or songwriters or actors or, or whatever you're into. And then, you know, follow them out into the real world, right? Read Samantha Irby's essay collections, which are hilarious. Um, but be really aware that you don't want to have that. You don't want to be avoiding things because you're worried it's going to be always dark and sad. You want to, if you love romance novels, find the Black romance authors who are out there right now. Um, I could list like eight great science fiction fantasy authors who are black right now because that's that's you know my genre my home right. genre but you really want to seek out black creators in all the areas that you enjoy and you will learn stuff 
along the way without the book being about quote unquote racism. Um, well, because you should read, you should read some some books by Black authors very seriously with a capital V and an S. Yeah. Like you read Ulysses by James Joyce or yeah. um, The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. Some some books are very serious, but there are plenty of books that are just fun and delightful. And and the touch, like I think about One Crazy Summer, cool. one of the uh, one of the students who's who's joining your middle school in the fall. Uh, wanted to read One Crazy Summer because they because they read it last year and they uh, several of the kids had mentioned how much they liked it and his mom sent me a note and said how much he loved it how funny he thought it was and how fun and it's about um a, about a family of girls who are visiting their mom and they end up going to a, a Black Panther summer camp so so it's definitely about black issues capital right. B capital I but it's also just a really fun book. So Yeah. The Civil Rights of the 1960s is the backdrop for the book. But the book is about it's highlighting these this family of really delightful sisters. Um yeah, and I was thinking back to even like this is so I I'm like I feel like I'm telling on myself all I'm sharing with you guys all of my embarrassing <laughs> stories. Um but like I learned so much from watching a different world in college to watch <laughs> that show religiously um and my college dorm tuesday was thursday wing night anyway um and i learned about colorism there were i mean and those weren't you know every once in a while a different world would have like a very special episode but it wasn't primarily it was primarily about fun stuff right um college kid fun stuff but i learned so much because i had so little knowledge of that world that any kind of information was new to me. <laughs> well, I, I I will say like I'm embarrassed because I knew about Juneteenth, but I knew about it from um a YA romance novel oh. about a white girl. Yeah. <laughs> well I think I think a lot of people learned about Juneteenth from Blackish, like I don't know, this a season ago or something like yeah. that. Um but yeah, that's you know, you you are still um like I said, Samantha Irby is a really funny uh essay writer. Um her first books are Meaty and uh, uh We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. And then her latest collection is called Wow No Thank You, which is such a great title. But she's not writing primarily about racism, but as a Black woman in the United States, you are getting a point of view, right? Um, but it shouldn't be eat your vegetables, right? You read, you discover these content creators and you read them because they're awesome. And you want to be sure to take that down into your homeschool to your students the same way, right? Make sure, I mean, when we chose One Crazy Summer, when I was trying to choose books for this past semester, you know, I really looked at a lot of really great books that were really, really tough. Um, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Excellent. excellent such a good book. book. Such, such a hard a good, book to read. <laughs> such a hard book, right? And what I didn't want to pass down to my students, just my white students, was um, this idea that stories with Black characters or written by Black authors are always grim and depressing and sad, right? And, or that stories that involve racism are always going to be this hard. And because as human beings, we avoid things that are hard quite often. Yeah. So it was a very deliberate choice to choose One Crazy Summer instead of Roll of Thunder. Although I hope all of my students read Roll of Thunder. It's such um, a good book. 
it's such a good book. So I think that when you are, I think as a parent, you know, this is one of the things, again, I've said this before, if I had to do over again, I feel like this is the major failure in my own homeschooler um, life was that we read so, so much. And I was very conscious about gender. I was very conscious to make sure we read as many girl books as boy books, but I was not at all thinking about uh other kinds of diversity. So pretty much we read books about white kids that I had read and I had enjoyed, you know, decades before. And that would have been such an easy fix, right? I mean, if I was doing it again now, again, there are such great reading lists out there. You can look at We Need Diverse Books. You know, there's Well Read Black Girl. There's all these different kind of lists well, and- for all Even things groups. like the the little ABC primer books, pick mm-hmm. one that isn't all white kids. Like those books are pretty interchangeable. Exactly, and 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 if it's hard to do, right? Because I, my book lists were easy to do because you know what, I picked books that I had loved as a kid. And if I had gone out there, and if I I would be have to pick new books, right? But there's there's the great news is especially like in middle grades publishing, there has recently been. Um, I mean, coming from a very small number, but there has been a lot more books about and by Black people um, coming out for middle grades. So there's so much out there now. And yeah, you might have to Google, you may have to do a little bit of reading on your own, but it's available. And if I was doing it now, I would probably try to I would probably try to make a goal for myself, right? Like whether it's one-to-one, I read one, one of my old favorite, you know, white British children frolicking as my daughter always (laughs) called them. And then maybe a different book that I hadn't read growing up, you know, there are that involved a person of color or that's about a black boy having adventures, right? Uh, Being a wizard. Um, Yeah, whatever it's, it's out there. You just don't want your kids to feel like it's and because it's not an eat your vegetables kind of thing. Right. It's well, I think enriching that's it. your world. And it's just seeing the actual world and not this particular window of it that we've mm-hmm. kind of focused on in European and American literature and history and even science. I mean. And you can do this throughout. You can do this, you know, like like Amy and I have talked about at the school, having having a semester that was, you know, no no old white guys allowed, right? <laughs> um, but you can do this with music and movies and and video games and a whole bunch. And I have to say too, if you're not aware, remember for your middle grade and high schoolers, remember comic books. There yeah. are some high powered authors, Ta-Nehisi Coates has written Black Panther, a series of Black Panther comic books, right? So Coates is, is again, a high-powered literary author guy, and he's written Black Panther. Uh, Nnedi Korfor, who wrote the um, wonderful Akata Witch book that we read a little while back in the school, writes another series about Wakanda, right? So, so you may find what you're looking for in unexpected places. Yes. Um, but yeah, go out. There's, there's, you know, think about it in different ways. Don't just think about it in book lists. Book lists are everywhere. But think about all the media you consume. Think about the social media you consume and think about how can, you know, go follow 10 black people that you haven't ever followed in your Twitter feed or an Instagram or something. And that is going to broaden your um, outlook on the world and enrich your outlook. Totally. 
Yeah, I I think that um, the book lists are such an easy and obvious place to start yeah. when you're trying to take some of the white privilege out of your homeschool. Homeschoolers are always making book lists. It is we love like what lists. we do. It is our way. <laughs> Collecting book lists, <laughs> not just making them. I collect them. I have like a whole folder of like, anyway. So, so an important piece of this, um, <laughs> actually reading, that not just making the list, but actually reading. Again, that's never a problem for you. But, but I do think that's important. We can sit around and accumulate lists and never get around to actually reading them. Right. Um, so it's important to just like start adding these books to our reading list immediately. Maybe they don't organically fit into the idea that we had envisioned. So so how could they fit? You know, like right. think about it. Are they the fun reads that you do? I think that's great. Like Suzanne said, I think sometimes we try to we try to treat books by black authors or native authors or Latinx mm-hmm. authors or other authors of color. We try to treat them like very serious books that have to be read as school books. And I, I do think that is a piece of the problem because they, sh- they should just be part of our reading collection. So exactly. put them out on your shelves. Encourage your kids to go through the shelves. Put them in your morning basket if you're a morning basket person. Did you ever do morning baskets, Susan? We did not, actually. That would have been too, too much work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was not that organized is what I'm trying to tell you. Uh. Yeah, no, I think I think also the work and also if you're educating yourself, right, because I've said go out and read the books and do your social media and, and listen to the podcasts and all that kind of stuff, you know, that our kids see us doing that. And regardless of how that directly transfers down into your homeschool, it does change how you homeschool. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I will tell you that when I was considering homeschooling, the one big problem that I couldn't see around it was that how were my kids going to get to know a diverse group of people? How were they going, you know, um, because my family is white and yeah. And I was worried about that. And I, I did some of it through my church, but you know, I also, one reason I, I talked myself around and said, that's not a problem is that I was also seeing, uh, how our local public schools were being manipulated so that, um, Kids who spoke uh, Spanish, you know, as a first language were being uh, bussed off to other schools, right? How I was seeing white privilege in action around our schools where people are deliberately trying to, you know, undiversify the schools. Uh, But that wasn't a good answer, right? The answer that I really should have gone for was, okay, how can I sit down and think about it? And I am an intelligent human being, and there are many people on the internet that I can read and research. How can I do a better job with my own homeschool? Well, and um, I I do sincerely think that diversity is one of the issues that people who are thinking about homeschooling run into. And I, I think that you're 100% right. I think that homeschoolers can actually do a better job of building a diverse community and helping their children appreciate diversity because they are doing it intentionally, right? If you send your kid to school, you might take it for granted that all of that is happening when it may or may not be. Right. But if you're really aware of it and you're actively and kind of, I don't know, radically trying to use, trying to make that a goal of your homeschool, you you can actually in some cases, do a better job than traditional school. It, it requires work from you, but that's kind of how homeschooling works. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about priorities, right? It's about prioritizing it. And um, and yeah, so so that's our, our what our, our Juneteenth message. 
and and go support the bail funds, um, the the legal aid funds. There's also probably by the time you hear this, it'll be over with. But have you seen the blackout the bestseller lists thing going around? Yeah, that's amazing. And there's so again so many good books. Buy all the books. Yeah, that's that's a push. They're asking people this week to buy two books by black authors. Doesn't matter the genre. Doesn't matter what it is. But to kind of show, yeah, it's it's. It's been really cool. I may have bought myself some books. <laughs> I will say that both Amazon and Target, who you may have issues with either of them for, for reasons, but they both have pretty substantial buy two, get one free book sales going on right now. So don't buy two books by black authors, buy three. <laughs> I saw Tristan Strong was on sale oh, as I'm, an ebook. I am and, such a fan of that. One of my and, the new N.K. Jemison. I don't think it's on sale, but The City We Became is out. So anyway, go N.K. That. Jemison is my favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one is about New York. Are you Have you read it yet? Are you gonna I haven't it? read it yet. But I but I, I feel like I kind of save up N.K. Jemison, not in yeah. the it's very serious way, but in the I want to read a book that I know I'm going to just absolutely love. Like I, yeah. her books are like that for me. She's See, I got um, us talking about N.K. Jemison and books again. I can't help it, Amy. I can't. <laughs> Tell me. Tell me what's going on in your in your life aside from aside from book reading. Well, you know, it is the end of our homeschool year. I mean, we're kind of this has been such a weird year. We we run homeschool year round, but kind of as summer summer inches in, I start to think about what are we going to do next year and what did we accomplish this year? And I thought this sounds so nerdy, but I thought that I would talk a little bit about how I wrap up the school year in terms of kind of talking with my student about how they did. Like, how did this oh. year look? Because because I feel like this is a question that we run into as homeschoolers, right? If we don't give grades, and, and I don't give grades until high school, if we don't give grades, how do our kids know how they're doing, right? Like, this, yeah. I feel like this is important. I know that I know that I am one of the people who would like someone to send me a report card every month and pat me on the back and say, yes, Amy, you are doing great. A plus, Amy. Good job. Keep <laughs> at it. You know, like I asked I, my, my dentist for a gold star the other day because okay, we'll see. they said I flossed well. <clears throat> my kids don't care about grades like that, which, which I think is good and important. We're no homeschoolers. <laughs> but, um, but I also feel like, like people need feedback, right. To get better and to kind of feel good about what you've done. You need feedback. I, I see a lot of people who, who don't give their kids any feedback and, and sometimes those kids end up in my classes and they have no academic confidence, right. Because yes. they, because no one has ever said, well, here's what you're doing well. And here's what you could do better. And I feel like we need both of those things to feel good about ourselves as students, right. That's why jobs do that, right? That's why if you have a job, that's part of your job, evaluations. So one of the ways that I handle this with with my students is I write um, I write them a letter kind of summing up each year. Um, I, I, I like to kind of, uh, I'm trying to think, what do, I, what do I do? How do I do this? So um, so I, I actually, it takes me several weeks to write them um, because I go through my planner, which is where I keep track of what we did. And I go through my planner and I look at the things that we did and the things that we read and I make lists. And then I kind of go back and try to group those lists into bigger categories. And then I compare those lists to the goals that we made together at the beginning of the year. 
Um, and so I try to put it all together into something that makes sense, right? It's not just a big list of like, well, here's what you did. It's, it's a kind of a thoughtful compilation. Well, here's where I think that you made great progress. And here are some things that you did that I loved. And here's some areas where I think you started to like, like where we found that there was a gap that we want to work on for next year. Um, so, I, so I really try to balance it out and to make it, um, make it a big and comprehensive kind of evaluation of the year. Um, I, and it feels, this feels important to me, right, to kind of pause and acknowledge some of the learning successes that happened over the course of the year and to kind of pinpoint some of the issues that we want to work on next year. Like, I, I will say, Suzanne, don't get mad at me, but I will say, like, I, I made a special note where I was really proud of my son because he had argued against the class interpretation of a text, right? Yeah. He had stood up for what he thought and he had found evidence to support it and he had argued it passionately. And I was really proud of that because I think yeah. that that shows that he has these reading skills that, that you know, like I, I want him to do more with that. I want him to look for more evidence and I want him to support his opinions better and to be braver about speaking up about them. So that's one thing that I talked about. And I also talked about how I felt like there were a lot of times where he didn't, um, he didn't give something his best effort, right? Like he waited a long time to do something and then it was stressful and unsatisfactory. Like he knew that he could have done better and he was disappointed in himself because he hadn't done as well as he could. And so what were some things that we could do to kind of like, like what suggestions does he have for how we could work on this for next year? So, so I mean, I really do try to include like, like things to work on as well as things that I'm proud of because I feel like that feels more honest too, right? If you only yeah. ever tell people, oh, yay, you're great, you're the best, which I, I know I am prone to do, um, <laughs> then they never really, it's hard to believe that, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, I, I write the little letter, and um, it's usually, I don't know, four or five pages long. It's a pretty dense letter. <laughs> but, but, I, but I feel like that is the feedback they get. That's their academic feedback for the year. And, and to me, it's an important part of the homeschooling process. Did you do anything like this with your kids? I did nothing like that. In fact, I'm sitting here feeling like, wow, you know, that's all right. I did my best. It's okay. I can't. Um, no, I'll be telling you about our end of the year. So our end of the year was was twofold. First, we'd say, okay, well, we're going to go. We'd pick, usually we'd pick like that. We kind of followed the school year. We didn't do that at the beginning of, anyway, I can tell you my whole history of homeschooling, but we kind of followed. So, you know, okay, we're going to try to wrap up. And then sometime when we get close to Memorial Day, we're going to swap over from our school year homeschooling to summer homeschooling, which is lighter, where maybe we're focusing on a book, you know, reading books and journaling and that kind of stuff. And here's here's what actually happened. About early May, I would start running out of energy and our homeschooling would just kind of peter out over the last two weeks. It involved a lot of days saying, oh, just do a math lesson and then you can be done for the day <laughs> and quit, quit arguing with your brother. Oh my gosh. You know, that was, you know, just, just finish these spelling words. All right. Um, and so then we would kind of peter out and then the kids would be like, Hey, what are we doing in the summer? And we wouldn't do any of that at all. So um, not only did we not have a lovely end of the year, letter we just didn't even really we just kind of trailed away because none of us could deal with it anymore so I guess the good news is that they all turned out okay um at least so far 
Um, and I, I do actually find that comforting. <laughs> they do. Yeah, they, they did. And I, you know, I was thinking about some of the other ways we did evaluations and um, it was, we did do a yearly standardized test. I administered it at home, found it online, all this kind of good stuff, um, which I thought was a really good way to objectively, you know, again, say, okay, well, when I say you're doing well in math, this is, you know, you're looking at your grade level, you're in this, that's what this means, right? right. I can show you objectively. I didn't write this test. I didn't, you know, um, and if there's areas where somebody was like, you know, oh, we forgot to cover pronouns or something. Right. Um, which happens. Which happens, right? Then we can come up with a plan. And I think that's a really important part of what Amy was talking about was not just the, hey, this is an area we need to work on, but a plan to do that, especially if you have kids who have perfectionist tendencies like like I did. Um, it can feel really, really scary to have those holes identified. And I didn't realize this about homeschoolers. I think my kids would have been better off if I had done more feedback of the type that Amy's talking about, because I knew how they were doing, because I could compare them. But they had they had been homeschooled from the very beginning. So they really had no way of comparing themselves to other students. Um, and which, which, and again, sometimes those comparisons can be reassuring and like, oh, okay, actually, I kind of know what I'm doing, where it can be kind of like, okay, this is an area that I need to work on. Um, either way, where you can give kids an opportunity to do that, whether it's through standardized testing, or whether it's through being tutored, even for a short period, having somebody else come in, or whether it's through taking a summer course in something for fun. I think classes with your peers is really helpful. I've found mm-hmm. that for my son, um, you know, I'll, every kid is different, but for my son, like being in a class of other people and comparing his work to the, to theirs has been really, really good for him. Like, like just in the sense of like, kind of, kind of figuring out where, where he could work harder, right? Right. Where he should work harder and where he is a great student. Yeah, you're, everybody, we all want to know our strengths and our weaknesses, right? We all want to know, it's, it's good to know those about ourselves. And homeschooling kids can often be floating in a sea of, of not knowing, which can lead, if you have kids who are prone to anxiety or perfectionism, which can lead to more anxiety than when for the first time, maybe they're put into a situation like that. But I will tell you, having not done any of it, <laughs> or haven't done it kind of like accidentally on the side, um, they all turned out okay, but they turned I, out great. I but, I know your kids; they're amazing. Well, except except the little one. I'm just except, kidding. I, I know he's my the, favorite, so I have to say that. Yeah, no, he's the worst. Um, so, uh, but but yeah, that that was a source of anxiety when we made the switch. I think from homeschooling to public school. Um, I am having a terrible time writing my daughter's letter. This I don't know if I've oh. mentioned that she graduated. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I congratulations. That's that's you should have said something. No, for real. Right, but it's it's the last it's the last one. This is my last homeschool job for her, and and after I write this, it's done. It's it's over. I'm I'm done. Like yay, but also hysterical crying. I don't know. You can still give her book lists. She doesn't have to read them, but you can still give her assignments. Keep giving her assignments. That's Amy. It's true. fine. Just I, give I, her. I, I could, but you know her. She would probably do them, and then I would feel terrible. Oh, yeah. No, that's a problem. That's <laughs> yeah. 
So have her give good. you assignments. Have her homeschool you. That's true. She would probably do a great job, and I would learn a lot, a lot, a lot about fan fiction that I don't. That's know. right. Give My daughter is a passionate fan fiction author. I respect. Total, total respect. Um, so yeah. So however your homeschool year wrapped up or is wrapping up, or I always meant to go year round, Amy. I really did. Um, and well, I I'm just you know that I only did it because I couldn't figure out where to stop. I mean, it seems like we had the same problem. We just interpreted it differently. Like we just acted on it in different ways. Like I was just like, I, I can't stop. I don't know when to stop. Like, is this an official stopping point? No, we better keep going. I know. No, I was I was going to go like calendar year, but then I realized that you, if I wanted to participate in anything in the community, I had to like follow the school year, right? right. Because summer camps and after class, after school classes and all this, and their friends, they're available anyway. I so, was a social distancing trendsetter. So. You were. See, you didn't associate with the outside communities. <laughs> I shouldn't even joke because that's not at all true since you led our Girl Scout troop and that's how we met. And how right, but I only did it because contact. my daughter like wanted some social contact. So. Yeah, still counts. I, I actually find as, as like a very, um, I don't know if you know, but I'm actually a, a, a hardcore introvert. Uh, you may not know this about me, Suzanne. <laughs> You fake it so well. You fake it. But but I am like really, really an introvert. And I find that if I'm going to do social activities, it's easier for me to be in charge of them because then I have a lot of stuff to do, right? I have a lot of jobs and and I can set them up and I can put them on my calendar and I can set the end time for them. Exactly. I I was thinking that. You can can tell everybody when it's over. So, um, so, so I have actually found that for building community for my kids, even though it, it seems counterintuitive for me, um, not liking community for myself that much, um, that it is easier for me to volunteer to lead things that that usually goes. Maybe that's why yeah. I started a school. <laughs> hey. To be in charge. Hey. And I just want someone else to be in charge. So it works out really well for me. Um, yeah. So tell me, so tell me what, how's your summer reading going? Oh, okay. Well, so I read. Um, I have I have a book to talk about. I'm so oh, proud. That's not that's not work related. That's not Japanese history or physics related. I read um, "Upright Women Wanted" by Sarah oh, Gailey. And I, I know this book. I haven't read it yet. But I know this book. Told me about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a western about some very I don't know how to describe them except to say they're badass women librarians. And they travel around the Wild West giving out books, right? It's a novella, so it's so it's not it's not a full novel. And it focuses on one young woman who's sort of stowed away in one of the librarian's wagons when they stopped in her town. She wants to escape from her family and from her fiancé, who she didn't pick, who got picked for her. And this is sort of about her discovering how the library works and what it really does, which isn't what it appears to do. And it is. Suzanne, it is a hoot. Sarah <laughs> Gailey, um, I, I know you know, uh, wrote uh, Magic for Liars, I think. Is yes. that right? Is that the right name yes. of it? About the, yeah. the, the twins, one of them who yeah, ends yeah, up yeah. at the magic school and one of them who doesn't and who becomes a private investigator who investigates a crime at the magic school. And she also wrote this very uh, weird series about um, – Hippo cowboys. Hippopotamuses to the Mississippi River, right? Yeah, I'm right yeah, I haven't read this No, one. no, no. It's, it's, it's hippo cowboys. Uh, it starts out with River of Teeth. Um, those are the books. I have read Magic for Liars, which I recommend. I have also read, I don't know if I've read her entire, the entire, like she collected them. There's a book called American Hippo that collects 
her works in this universe. Um, and I, I read haven't read those, but I feel like upright women wanted must have some of the tone because it is a Western and those are Westerns, right? Yes. It's, it's, it's the it's hippo cowboys, right? Because there was a real life idea that somebody floated of importing hippos to like the swamps in the Delta, like Louisiana, and that they would they would eat uh, invasive uh, uh, plants and they would provide another food source. And so in this alternate history that happened. And uh, so we follow some people who round up hippos and also ride ride hippos. And I will point out that I know this sounds really like cute and funny, but remember that hippos are incredibly violent. <laughs> so there is some violence in these books. Bad things happen. Hippos eat people is what I'm saying. And there's um, like some historical fact at, at the core of it, right? People did yeah. talk about doing oh, this. It was, it was a for real, it was a for real suggestion raised in the American government. I can't remember if it was at the state level. I think it was at the national level and she changed the time frame of it so they could be cowboys. But, um, but no, this is an, uh, she read that fact somewhere. And and then and then American hippo. Then she just I mean, because how why wouldn't she write about hippo cowboys once you have the idea to have hippo cowboys? Um, so, no, but I'm very much looking forward to reading Upright Women Wanted. Westerns aren't usually my jam. I did read all of my dad's um, Louis L'Amour books when yeah. I was in middle school, so so I yeah. so I have experience with westerns, even though I I've never like sought them out on my own, but. I highly recommend it's um, it's smart and like so many of Gailey's books, it's sort of effortlessly feminist and diverse, which is so absolutely, nice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it is just, it is pure fun. It's a short, quick read. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was such a fun book. And Esther, the main character kind of who is, who is trying to come into her own as a person in a world that doesn't have a lot of respect for women or uh, people who don't follow the rules. It, it's a really fun and charming story, and I, I enjoyed it immensely. I recommend it. Thank you for recommending it to me. I'm best. I'm basically the best. Uh, check it out in ebook. Last I saw it was on sale maybe for the entire month of June. So, um, yeah, so that's good. So I have been reading about the Mongols because my kids <laughs> said they were cool, and I want to tell you they are not cool. They are just big old genocidal mass murderers. But you know, I mean, interesting. I think interesting and cool people use interchangeably, but they don't mean the same thing. <laughs> yeah, so I don't want to talk about the Mongols because I am not enjoying reading about the Mongols, but um, I do want to talk about a fun book I just read. Uh, so you guys may know the author Marjorie Sharp from her children's books. She is the, I read all of the rescuers, uh, Miss Bianca stories growing up. And I have a stack of them on my bookcase here. Um, what I didn't know was that aside from reading about, aside from writing about mice who rescue children, she also wrote a bunch of adult novels. And many of them have been out of print for a really long time. And uh, they've been reissued and are available as ebooks uh, in a lot of cases. And I think somewhere I've written, or maybe on the podcast, I, I wrote about um, the first one that I read by her called The Nutmeg Tree, which I really enjoyed. But just recently I finished another one. It's called Something Light. And I picked it because that's the title. <laughs> and that's. That, that I'm like, that's the book I want right now. That's the book I want. It's called Something Light. And it is set, I'm probably going to get this wrong. I think it's set in the 60s. 
and the protagonist is a young woman. She is actually a dog photographer, and uh, she lives on her own, and she has discovered at this point in her life that she is taking care, that men men flock to her, but in part <laughs> because they want her to take care of them. So she has found that she is, and she, because she's a photographer, she's kind of involved with these like artist communities. So she is suddenly like in the position, she realizes that she is taking care of all these men that she knows. And she decides that she doesn't want to do that anymore. And so the thing she's going to do is get married and um, have some, have a husband to take care of her. For the first time so i mean it's not maybe a hundred percent forward-looking feminist but uh the rest of the book is her kind of like going like her first idea is okay i'm gonna get an old rich husband because they'll take care of me really well right so she finds one and she she kind of gets involved with him and then that doesn't work out for various reasons and then she has another idea of the kind of man the kind of husband that she should have so it's her kind of trying on all these different husband ideas and uh until she finally gets to one that works but it's it's light it's funny it's charming um yeah it's a lot of fun so i recommend and i I think that you know it probably in its day this would have seemed like a feminist book because the idea that a woman would take this choice into her own hands is would, would have been pretty pretty feminist at the time yeah, and she is. She's a fun character. Like I said, she's on her. She supports herself. She's on her own. She's a dog photographer, and then she just decides she doesn't want to do. She doesn't want to work anymore. She'd much rather have us than take care of her. And I'm like, I do not disagree with your reasoning there. I mean, that would be nice. Nice work if you can get it. So anyway, it's a very fun book, and I'm looking forward to reading more by um, Marjorie Sharp. I find those kinds of vintagey books scratch for me a very specific kind of itch. You know, like like just yeah. I, and I think some of that may have to do with white privilege in the way that I grew up, but I, but I also think that that is an, that is an okay piece of my reading life. Right. Right. So I guess that is a wrap for this episode of the podcast with Suzanne and Amy, brought to you by our awesome Patreon supporters and Homeschool Life magazine. We will be back soon with more conversations about the places where home, school, and life intersect. We'll see you then. Bye.